You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Good morning. I'm Chad, one of the pastors with King's Cross Church, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 1, um, specifically verses 16 and 17 as a home base. Um, so you can turn there. Normally we're going to be going through books of the Bible, and normally we meet in person. But a um, little bit of icy weather outside, um, road conditions, we're playing it safe, staying warm, and uh, but still getting in the Word. So uh, so in about, I think, eight weeks or something like that, seven, eight weeks, we're going we're gonna to begin a series in, uh, in the book of Exodus. We normally teach through books of the Bible, and, um, and we're going to be, the plan is, God willing, to start that in, uh, in there, the beginning of March. But uh, for right now, we're actually going through a sermon series on foundations and values, the core values of King's Cross Church, really uh, focusing on what do we as a church, um, both from biblical conviction and personal, um, what do we value the most uh, as a faith community? And what do we believe God has called us to seek to keep central in everything that we do? What do we want to be known for as a church? And um, last, well, now two weeks ago, we were in Psalm 145, and uh, we really talked about how primarily uh, we exist to glorify God. Um, that, that is our purpose as believers, as disciples of Christ. <clears throat> and he has made us for his glory. And, and, and that is the foundation for, uh, for all that we do. And all that we understand about this world. Uh, this week, in the next four, we're going to go be walking through the gospel, being gospel-centered. We're going to talk about um, community, um, the community of faith, serving selflessly, and then finally going to be talking about mission and multiplication. But uh, today, today in Romans chapter 1, uh, we're going to be looking together at the gospel, and specifically what it means for us to be gospel-centered, gospel-centered. So uh, if you would join me in prayer, we're uh, just pray that the Spirit would be with us as we dive into the Word. So, uh, Father, I'm just grateful this morning that we have the opportunity to, to come together like this in the Word. I'm thankful that you give us technology to, to pursue um, learning together like this, and, and Lord, I'm thankful for a church body that wants to hear from you um, day by day and week by week together corporately. Guys, we open up your word. Teach us. Lord, let your spirit come first and foremost. That would guide my words so that in my preparation, um, your truth would go forth, Lord, to transform us so that only in your power you'd make us more like Christ. Fill us with your spirit, that the gospel would overflow, and the grace, your kindness and grace would overflow into the world around us, so that we could show them the love of Christ. We love you. Thank you, and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, when we start to talk about the gospel, um, 
it somewhat begs the question, why do we even need the gospel? Uh, the term means good news. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good news, a report of a victory, actually. I mean, in its original sense, it would have been used um, by messengers that would come from battlefields back to the city and, and, and to let the people of the city know uh, that their king, their army that went out in conquest had seen victory. And, and so a, a, a gospel um, messenger would come running back to the city um, and, and deliver that gospel, that good news. But why do we need good news today? Well, I, I'd hope that we could understand or agree. I hope we'd agree that the world we live in is, is broken, isn't it? I, I'd hope that you could, I, I don't pray that you see the brokenness, but inevitably all of us are affected by it. And it's probably never been more clear uh, than in the most recent years, um, it, it seemingly so, ever present in our face. But but even, even a known atheist, um, Sam Harris, author of The Moral Landscape, uh, he's, he, he's quoted as saying that we are living in a world that seems perfectly designed to frustrate our efforts to find permanent happiness that we live in a world that seems perfectly designed to frustrate our efforts to find permanent happiness. There, there isn't a corner of this world that isn't impacted by some measure of brokenness. Uh, clearly, we see the pandemic that's affected multiple families across the globe. We, we can see um, the devastation of storms that have hit homes. And I'm just talking about natural causes right now. Much less speaking of the, the hurt that we cause one another. The oppression of unfair justice systems in countries with leaders who don't care about their people. Uh, the way we harm one another as neighbors and do harm one another. Murder rates within the United States alone, much less around the globe. Killing, stealing, all these things we do to one another. My, my family alone has seen the death of two young members within the last month. I, I haven't, being completely transparent here, I, I haven't had a completely 100% healthy, I've had five healthy days since December 27th of last year. And, and that's, that's just the sickness, pervasiveness that's even affecting our bodies. It affects our minds, the way we see things. Everything about this world shows us we see brokenness. But even in that brokenness, humans have tried to solve the problem, have they not? Have we, have we not saw, tried to solve the problem? We've tried to do things collectively by laws and social programs, uh, coming up with the next big best plan, the right politician who's going to get in place and correct the social structure so that we can start to fix the brokenness. Um, we've activism, activist groups who come together to try to... Um, to champion certain movements and certain causes, raise money to, to, to throw it at, at the different issues around the world, places that are, are just simply falling short of, of, of simple needs like food and water and, and trying to meet those needs. 
We have awareness campaigns that we need to, that we need to, there's so much brokenness, there's brokenness that we don't even know about, that we have to have campaigns to help people realize how much is out there and how much brokenness is there. I, I've heard a stat recently, I believe that there's estimated to be more human slaves in the world today than there were during the African slave trade. More human slavery today. And that's a brokenness that not everybody's aware of. North Carolina is one of those, where we reside here, is one of those chief places for human trafficking. The brokenness is right at our doorstep. Individually, we try to find uh, fixes to the brokenness by maybe pursuing professional success, for improving our career, for finding ways to gain more money, more influence. Maybe we want to uh, find some kind of personal success and health, um, achievements, fitness, hobbies that we go after, something to, 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 to put a salve on the real pain of brokenness that surrounds us. Some of us seek that in relationships, through love, trying to find the perfect partner, dating, sex, intimacy, anything to draw close to another human being. But even in those relationships, we find more complication and brokenness, do we not? Sometimes we try to find medical solutions, whether it's prescribed for psychological reasons or if it's self-medicating. People go after illicit drugs, overused tobacco products, um, alcohol, caffeine, anything to curb the brokenness that we see. Then others might spiral down into self self-destructive behaviors, find themselves in deep depression, isolating themselves, harming themselves, trying to find release, even taking their own life. Even still, as we open up the Bible to look at God's word, we have to recognize that some people try to address the brokenness through religion, through good works, through finding some way to alleviate guilt by doing better, self-justifying, doing penance, paying a price another way. And not, not all of the things we're mentioning here, we're thinking about are inherently bad. Not all of them are inherently bad. Some of them are really a stewardship thing. We should pursue better health. We should, we should look to gain money and to use it wisely and, and to, to work hard and, uh, and to do good work. But, but they're, they're not all inherently bad, but they're not solutions because we all still find ourselves in the brokenness that we started in. That's why God comes along with the gospel. See, all these things aren't solutions because none of these things were ever meant to be our savior. They were never built to be able to save us from our sin, from that brokenness. Even Romans 1 says we would do this. We would pursue other things. 
In Romans 1, Paul tells the Romans that, that people were pursuing all the created things instead of the Creator. But the truth is, God didn't make it this way. God didn't create this broken world. He created the world, <coughs> excuse me, in Genesis 1, we see in the beginning God created the world and he made it very good. He made it good. Good. Now, listen, not good in the sense that we use the term good. If you're like me, you might ask me, like, how was, how was, that, uh, how was the hamburger? Eh, it's good. Not great, but it was good, right? Um, there was a, there was a, a sermon um, delivery professor who I, I heard a story about he would uh, teach a class and whenever uh, a student, whenever a student would complete a sermon delivery, he would normally traditionally get up before he begins a review, before he review, begins his feedback, and he would say, good word, great text. Obviously delineating between, hey, you did a good job delivering that sermon and now it's always a great text because it's God's word. Then the story goes on that there was one particular student who who stepped up to preach uh, for his time and and was all over the place. He was just a hot mess. Um, it had some illustrations involving juggling tennis balls. I don't know. It was it was it was all over the map. Didn't make sense. So at the end of the sermon, uh, the same professor uh, started to do his review and he said, "Great text. <laughs> Great text. There's actually uh, some." members of our church who, who, who know that illustration and, and come up to me after most sermons and tell me, great text. So uh, I know they mean well by it, but, uh, but, but that's not the difference we're talking about here. We're not talking about good, that God made things good as if there was something better to be made. We mean good in the perfectly morally good sense, that you can't say it's good unless it is good. And even go so far in the final analysis for, for God to say it was very good. And so God made everything good. And he placed Adam and Eve in that good creation in the garden. And he placed them there and, and had perfect communion with them. Perfect shalom. In, in the Hebrew language, Jewish um, people would often often still even today will greet one another uh, with a greeting of shalom shalom which is peace uh, but but it's normally translated as peace but it's something so much fuller than that it's complete perfection and peace it's health it's wholeness and so adam and eve enjoyed perfect shalom in the garden and, and God said, he placed them in the garden, he said one thing, he said, you can eat of anything in this garden, and I'll walk with you daily, and spend time with you daily, and you can be with this in relationship with me, your good and great God and creator, but you cannot eat of this one tree, or you'll surely die. That's it. And Adam and Eve chose, after tempted by Satan, to do just that. They said, Satan said, if you, if you do that, he's trying to keep something from you. He, he's trying to hide something from you. God's not telling you the whole truth. You're not going to die. You're going to be a God if you eat that. And so in a, in a very real sense, they both simultaneously did not believe God. And they sought to be God. 
They wanted to be on the throne. They wanted to usurp his authority. But even in their rebellion, God promised a way for redemption. He promised a way of salvation. Because in the point where he when he, he passes, he distributes, he announces, he lets them know what the consequences would be, he also says that there would be a man who would crush the serpent's head. There would be a man who would crush and have victory over Satan's sin and death. And that man, 2,000 years ago, came as a little baby to fulfill that promise, Christ. He kept his word. And he sent Christ, born, a baby. God, the Son of God, King of the universe, humbled himself to be born as a baby. He was born as a baby. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he was crucified, buried, rose again on the third day, conquering Satan, sin, and death on our behalf, taking all our sin. So now we live in this broken world, and yes, it's marred by sin, but that sin has been paid for. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And sadly, today we're hearing regular stories, deconversion stories, stories of people who are claiming to lose their faith, walk away from, at least claiming to walk away from the gospel. But, but I notice in most of those stories, and, and here, let me take a step back. I'm not talking about deconstruction, okay? Uh, I want to be clear. Deconstruction is often cited as leading to deconversion, and that can be the case. But deconstruction itself is an evaluation of most of your assumed beliefs that you've built your life around and evaluating and comparing them against the truth, and then tearing down those things which don't hold up and reestablishing with firmer foundations. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing when you're comparing it to the true and real gospel. But the problem is that many of these stories are leading to deconversion. When we hear what they thought they believed, Way too often, we're hearing about people who had believed because they wanted to get into heaven or maybe avoid hell. It was a ticket to uh, another good life, a better life. Um, maybe it was a better life now. They thought that they uh, believed Jesus. They'd have marriage that was uh, healed. They'd have their kid. They'd be a better parent. Their kids would act act right. Um, Maybe they just specifically thought they would be receiving some immediate blessings from God, that they believe the gospel and all of a sudden all their dreams will come true. In the end, too many of these, of these deconversions, these even statements of faith are in something cultural, something that's performance-based, or just maybe being born into a Christian culture, or measure of some kind of a therapeutic belief that in doing this in believing in Jesus something good is going to be coming right now in my life today that I want but it's not about wanting Christ it's not about wanting God 
And ultimately, that is what the gospel's about. We're, we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what Christ did in coming was make a way that we could be restored into that relationship with God. That's where life is. Historically, when stonemasons began the construction of a building, they started by placing something called the cornerstone. It was the beginning foundation, and once placed, it determined the orientation of the entire building, and every wall could be squared back to this stone. And in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus is quoting Isaiah when he says, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is that sure foundation in which all of our life can be built and framed up against. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. What I hope we walk away with today and the hope we understand today is that genuine life, the Christian life, true life is rooted in and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else is imitation. Everything else falls far short. It's not even in the same category. It's not even life. It's a substitute. Believers, we need to remember this every day. We need to remember this every day. Our life should be centered on the gospel. This gospel. Unbelievers, it's important for you to hear this gospel. Don't judge Jesus based on any other peddlers of some religious promises. Okay? Don't, don't judge Jesus on the errors of sinful people. Don't Look at this gospel. Look at the gospel. Look at scripture. This is why we at King's Cross are gospel-centered. This is why we want to be gospel-centered. My prayer, our prayer as leadership, is that everything we do would be centered around the gospel. That everything in the lives of our people would be gospel-centered. And so how do we do that? What does it look like for us to be gospel-centered? Well, we're in Romans Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to have to turn my Bible over here. We're in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. And I, and I, and I, I propose that Paul here is giving us two ways. He's showing us, he's demonstrating two ways that we might live gospel-centered. Okay? Two ways. Let me read this to us. Text. Starting verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For um, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Two verses, two simple verses, but power packed with the gospel. Potent verses. And in these verses, there are two ways Paul calls out that we can be, that we will be and can be living gospel-centered. The first one is that we would be living unashamed of the gospel. 
See that in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul wants to go to Rome and he wants to go to this, this church in Rome that's full of believers, believers, and he wants to preach the gospel to him. He says that in verse 15, I want to come to you and preach the gospel. And why does he want to preach the gospel? Because he's not ashamed of it. He wants to preach the gospel because it's not just good for the first time you hear it, that you believe it and then you, you move on. But Paul says, you're a church, you're believers, you need the gospel. I'm going to come preach it to you. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How do we live unashamed of the gospel? Well, if we follow Paul's example, we're going to not compromise on the gospel. Paul says elsewhere that if the resurrection didn't happen, then we're all fools. Then this is a waste of our time. And that's exactly true. If every aspect of the gospel is not true, then what are we wasting our time on? And, and honestly, we need to both not compromise on the gospel, but also be willing to boldly proclaim the explicit gospel in all of its truth. Now, the world is going to attack this. The world is going to say that resurrection is crazy. The world is going to say that the crucifixion is divine child abuse. Why do you need that bloody mess? This human sacrifice system, how... How archaic. But the truth is, the gospel is fundamental to everything we believe. And the temptation might be that we waver in some way to the left or to the right, that we equivocate or compromise. It's not new in history. People all the time will say, yeah, yeah, I believe the bulk of what's going on here, but I agree the resurrection's crazy. I mean, rise from the dead. I don't, I don't even understand that. If we can believe that God is all-powerful and can create everything in the universe, why do we start to have problems with other things that we think he can do? Why does that become a point of dissension? We have to be bold and we have to be uncompromising. But Paul has a very important point in this text. He, he doesn't say he's unashamed for no reason. There's two things he calls out that are critically important to why he's unashamed. And the first thing he says off the bat is, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. God promised salvation and he delivered it. And the gospel is a demonstration of that power. That he has the power to save. And it's God's power on display. That, that he is the one at work. He's the mover. He's the power, the initiator of the gospel. He's the one that saves. Why is Paul not ashamed of that? Because that's God's power on display. The, the mind of man struggle with this. Even as they trusted in the promises of God, they... How was he going to pull it off? That he was going to be able to remain as that good, just, and holy God and still save sinful man. How does he do that? Well, Paul goes on. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. So, Let's not go past that quickly. It's for all those who believe, that trust in his saving power. 
the Jew and the Greek is simply saying it's for everybody. It came to the Jews first, but that term there used for Greek is also generally used for all non-Jewish people, for all non-Jewish people. And so here, Paul's saying it's for everybody. Yeah, it came to the Jew first, but I'm coming to you who's non-Jewish, and it's for you too. How is it the power of God for salvation? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. See, God is righteous and remains righteous. And his righteousness is revealed in the power of the gospel. The question is asked, why can't God just simply forgive sinful men? Why does it have to be a sacrifice of Christ? Why why can't God just act like there's no offense or just pass it along and then we're all good, we're going to heaven? Some people are under that impression. Some people want to believe that. I'd love to believe that, that we're all good and everything's great. You know, I, when I ask my kids um, to forgive one another, when I say ch- to the children, when we ask them to forgive, we don't expect there to be a bloody sacrifice, right? Fair? I mean, nobody's got to lose their life for forgiveness to occur, right? So so why can we apply that to God? Well, God, forgive us, rock and roll, Right? But why is it so hard to forgive? Have you ever have you ever wondered or considered that? I would suggest it's because forgiveness comes at a cost. It's it's why we um it's why we withhold forgiveness when we do. Because we don't want to release them of that debt, of that guilt. I mean, we understand um, that in reality, forgiveness truly, truly is taking debt on yourself. That when you forgive someone, that wrong, that offense, you're absorbing it on yourself. This makes sense in financial terms. If you owe money to a bank uh, or a credit card company and they forgive your debt, it's not you didn't pay it. They took the debt on their own books. They absorbed the debt for you. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's the same principle. That in reality, when God forgives us, he's taking the price and paying it himself. And that's exactly what we see. But when we sin, we are usurping God's authority and we're trying to assume his rightful role as Lord over our life. We're trying to literally seize the throne from the creator of the universe. And the wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23, is death. That's the rightful payment. Even those who imagine that everyone should just go free would still find fault even if God managed to try to do this. Can we be honest about that? Can we, can we be honest that, that either the, the, the options are either we're all automatons who have no choice but to just simply be subservient to God and honor Him or 
as we all do now, we walk and choose sin. And if God were just to liberally, loosely hand out that forgiveness to everybody, just to count of because whatever, all his current scoffers would say, hey, hold the phone. Listen, I mean, for me and people like me, that's cool. But we also are a society who likes justice. We, we live in a society where of swift and vicious social judgment, don't we? I mean, we really do. We, we're in a society where a journalist can literally tweet a sarcastic comment while boarding a plane and have lost their job before they land eight hours later solely because of the outpouring of public pressure on their employer. I mean, we see this over and over again. Though we're broken by sin, we bear the image of God and we want to see justice. Even in weird, wrongful circumstances, but also in very right situations. We want to see justice, don't we? I mean, shouldn't the guilty pay? Shouldn't they be charged? We, we all normally agree to this. But for some reason, we don't want to hold that same standard when it comes to God. Everyone wants justice. We just imagine God's wrath is really for people that are worse than us, right? Hitler, Stalin, Mao, those are the usual ones. Maybe some others, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Here's the deal. Romans 1, 18 through 20. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since that... What can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what's made. This, this is why there's good news. This is why we have the gospel. Because God has clearly made himself clearly evident to all of creation. And in our unrighteousness, we suppress that truth and, and don't want to honor the Creator. So he's rightly angry. Not, not angry for the sake of like unjust causes, but for a right cause. God's not arbitrary. So instead of just whatever, he absorbs the cost and pays it for us. He's not arbitrary. His offer of forgiveness is absolute and sufficient for all. And it's all in Christ. Martin Luther in this very passage, in this very passage is where Martin Luther realized his way to righteousness. It's where he read this, that his righteousness wasn't dependent on himself. Because if it was, we'd all be in the same situation that we just read in Romans. Because in ourselves, we're guilty before God. But what we read in this, in this verse is that the righteousness is not our own. The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel for us in Christ. And this is expanded elsewhere, actually, in later chapters in Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, is almost like taking that portion of the scripture and kind of blowing it up and breaking it apart for us. 
So let's look and see what it says in Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Again, like we said, there's no distinction between people. It's offered in through faith in Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Remember, before Christ, there were people here on earth and he passed over those looking forward to the cross. He passed over those previously committed, 26, and God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is God's righteousness revealed to all men? Well, he remains just in the gospel. Sin is paid for. God is still righteous and the wages of our sin are paid in Christ. But he also is the justifier. It's in his power that he gives us salvation, that he offers us freely salvation through faith. He's not only wiping away that debt either. He's justifying us not by just taking us to zero. He's not saying, hey, your slate's clean. Now do better from here. No, instead, he's actually giving us Christ's righteousness. All of his perfect righteousness is counted for us. Believer, God doesn't simply tolerate you. You don't have to earn his favor. He loves us with the same perfect love that he has for Christ. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come before the Father freely because he sees us with the righteousness of his Son. Don't don't try to clean yourself up before you come to the Father. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Romans 5.1 says this very same thing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we can be, live unashamed of this gospel because in it the power of God is revealed and the righteousness of God is revealed. And then the second thing, the second way we can be gospel-centered is that we also live by faith. We live unashamed of the gospel and we live by faith. The second portion of this chapter, this, this passage, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteousness, the righteous will live by faith. This is coming from the book of Habakkuk, actually, in the Old Testament. And it's been true from the old to the new. God hasn't changed the way this works. The righteous uh, were always righteous by faith, living by faith. Abraham says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith 
is, is not blind faith either. We're not talking about um, some kind of accusation the atheist might sling that we're exhibiting faith by believing in something for which there's no evidence. Blind faith, credulity, it's not a virtue. Just believing for the sake of believing. In fact, there is ample evidence, as Roman 1 says, that there is evidence that God has made it clear by what he has made. And we place faith in that final hope of what God will do in glorifying and finally completing our salvation offered to us in Christ based on the evidence of what he's already done, that he would send his son on our behalf, that he has always been true to his word, that he has never failed his people. And so we don't place blind faith. We have confidence in the hope of the gospel. So we trust and we believe that God is true. And so in that, we live by faith. We have life today, now, because of our faith. But while we're still on this side of glory, while we're still not completely glorified, we also walk by faith, living in this life, continuing to trust in him day by day. As a matter of fact, the Galatians were criticized by Paul for not doing this, that they, are you so foolish after beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? They tried to to continue to work their way into God's approval. But reality is that we continue all the time every day by faith. We live every day by faith. Now, what does that look like? Well, that means not that we work and are obedient to earn God's favor, but that we are obedient to God because we know and trust his love in us. Right? Listen. James says that a faith and trust in God is evidenced by our works. Because what is faith without works? A faith that isn't demonstrated in the way we live is dead. So faith leads to action. And what kind of action is led by faith? Well, the fact that we believe God and we trust Him. We live daily trusting in His righteousness for us on our behalf, but seeking to be obedient and pursue holiness. We take up our cross daily and follow in obedience after our Savior. Not because, not because we need to earn His love, but because God has demonstrated His love toward us already. Listen, non-Christians can live moral lives, but living by faith also looks a little different because of the gospel. Yeah, we can, we can see moral lives lived out by Christian, non-Christians, but living by faith, the gospel completely transforms our life. Everything takes on a different purpose and meaning. The relationships that we have, all of the other values that we're going to speak towards are all impacted by being gospel-centered. That, that we can live in hum, uh, unity as the community of faith because Christ humbled himself for us and we should have that same mind and think more highly of others than ourselves. In our marriages, we, we serve one another as Christ served the church and gave his life up for her. So the husband also gives his life up for his wife. And the wife, as the Christ is head of the church, he honors and respects her husband. That we're submitting to one another seeking unity and peace because God submitted his life, I mean, Christ submitted his life for us. 
And then we work. We work as unto the Lord in worship. And when we serve, we look at community service and selfless service. Well, we know that Christ laid down his life to serve us. And he demonstrated service for us when he washed, our, he fought, washed the feet of his disciples. So how could we not serve others? Multiplication and mission? Man, go and make disciples. Christ said, go and make disciples who know all of his commands. We are agents of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for the kingdom. We bring good news. So yeah, we're on mission because we are gospel-centered and we know this good news is for all people. All people everywhere. We should be asking the question every day, believer. Asking the question, where am I not believing the gospel? Where am I believing a false story? In my marriage, am I trusting God as I serve and lay down my wife for my spouse? In my relationships within the church, am I thinking about, about myself or am I putting others first? As I serve in the community, am I, am I taking up my cross and following after Jesus who laid down his life for me? And none of these things are ever going to earn God's love because he already has given it to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believe will not perish but have everlasting life. That promise is for us believers. And if you're a non-believer, if you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, that promise is for you. I want you to hear everything that I've said today, but also open up the word and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. It's evidenced in everything you see. There's a creator of the universe. Out of nothing, nothing comes. There's a first cause. And he is, he is king of glory who loved you so much that he wanted to have a relationship with you. Come to Christ. Salvation is freely offered for all of us. And we can walk by faith confidently knowing that we have rightly placed our hope in him. Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for the way you have demonstrated your love in Jesus. God, grant us today um, a real grace that no matter what I may or may not have said, that your spirit would teach us. We're thankful, Lord, for your kindness and we're thankful for your gospel. Lord, may it be the center of our life and we lead, may we lead a life um, fully committed and devoted uh, to your glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.